Did you know Echoplex has a 24-hour stream? That's right. Check out our 24-7 music stream at echoplexmedia.com live or at eplex.xyz. Our huge self-submitted local music library plays the best tunes the Bay Area has to offer, ad and commercial free, well, except for ours, and even by request. Check out the player on echoplexmedia.com or at eplex.xyz. Bookmark it and enjoy it all day. Echoplex is very supportive of our local music scene, and we hope you enjoy the soundtrack they've so graciously sent in for us to play on our network. If you like who you hear, please go check them out. The names of the artists are displayed on the player at echoplexmedia.com and at eplex.xyz. And let's just spell it out for you. E-C-H-O-P-L-E-X. They put me in a fucking magazine. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. I've got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt, but to me that doesn't matter because my skin and my gender and my orientation are the best things to have if you live in this nation. I recommend it highly. On the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. Shit's gonna work out for me. Cause I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. Hey everybody, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do the show live every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Pacific, right here on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash echoplexmedia. Go to echoplexmedia.com slash support, and you can find tons of ways to support us. My favorite way is the swag shop, but you can make your own decisions when you get here. Joined by uh, two two co-hosts this evening, uh, my usual week-in, week-out, almost every week co-host. Uh, what's up? How you doing? I'm doing really well. Uh, I got a new pink chair, so so now when I swivel my chair around, it'll be awesome and pink. My <laughs> other chair moved over there, so that's fantastic. <laughs> yep. Who are you? And uh, wild historian Matt appears. <laughs> a wild historian Matt appears. Matt, what's up? <laughs> yeah, I'm historian Matt. I'm usually on some other shows, uh, mostly how the tech are you? So you guys should uh, check that out. It's not a live show; it's recorded. So. You can get it on uh, your usual uh, podcast catchers and and YouTube. But I'm here Guess for the what show. I forgot to do today. What? 
Oh, yeah. Guess what yeah, I forgot, forgot to do today? You forgot to upload that. Edit I forgot and to edit and upload it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm here tonight because you're covering a topic, a uh, person who I know a little bit about, and I wanted to make fun of him. <laughs> oh, very good. So to, we're sometimes we like to go outside of our usual kind of IDW space, but we always like to keep it with somebody who's sort of like, I guess a guru is the only way to really say it, um, even though there's a podcast that is our direct competition that has that in their name. Um, but Public intellectual. Pu- public. I'm not sure we would call Tony Robbins a public intellectual. I think guru is a better. He's like a, he's like a finance I guru. I think he would call himself that. Well, that's the first rule of public intellectualism is that you have to call yourself one. Yeah. <laughs> 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 So I went around looking and I saw, I saw some of his talks from like Dreamforce and all that shit. And I was like, you know what? He's got this podcast where he claims he's giving you a master class in something. And I figured that would be like a more appropriate thing for us to watch. So here, here's him interviewing. This is uh, Chris Barton, the founder of Shazam. If anybody doesn't know what Shazam is, Shazam was one of the first apps where you could hold your phone up at the bar and it would tell you what the song is. Um, and, uh, so does that even exist anymore? I I think so. Yeah, I think it's like oh. used. I think it's now like a service that other applications use. Uh, okay. So I have no beef with Chris Barton, although we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll see how it goes. Maybe I will have some beef with Chris Barton. I'm already he's already starting off on a bad foot with me because I wasn't really aware of him before this, and the first time I'm going to watch him is on with a grifter and a possible or likely sexual assaulter, uh, Tony Robbins. So without any further ado, here's the Tony Robbins podcast, The Power of Perseverance with Two Rich White Guys. <laughs> when I came up with the idea for Shazam, I thought, you know, it's going to be, people are going to hold their phone up in the air and then they're going to know the name of the song. And that just felt like magic. It really felt like magic. Yeah, still, I think. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's like, wow, how can it be? I guess it felt like magic the first time they, uh, that came out. I mean, it was a pretty cool idea. Uh, it's a person you don't know the person, but I bet you've used the product. I don't think it was Shazam. necessarily an original idea, but Shazam did it best. Yeah. How many have Shazam on your phone? How old is this? This is, I, I don't know. This is, it's, it's recently uploaded, but I don't know how old this is. Okay. Cause I'm like, probably nobody has it on their phone directly anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, but what I love here is that these are like the people on the Zoom call. These are all the people he's grifting, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look at this lady in the in the upper left. I don't know which way to point with the the uh, like pink and blue background. Yeah. <laughs> it says grab your NFT now. <laughs> oh, these are the worst. <laughs> Must not have been very long. Okay. But what you're seeing on the screen right here is the worst possible blunt rotation. <laughs> look at these three people in the top in the top right of the screen all cheating of sharing one master class account oh, we see you we see you and the guy below just has a random sign that says yes that's that's will you well, like, i don't think there's a yes no question I, I guess so those guys can't even afford to finish their wall so <laughs> i think that's an incubator i don't know anyway let's my wall is not even that expensive product, when he came up with this product it was impossible. Everyone said it was impossible. He came up with a product three years Literally, no one said it was impossible. Seven years before we ever had an iPhone. I mean, it literally, before there was digital music, he thought of this idea of, wouldn't it be cool if you could wave... Wait, before there was digital music? No. No, no, no. There, there's, <laughs> been, there's been music available in... Like, does this guy know about a thing called the compact disc? 
<laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably isn't aware uh, that's digital music. There was actually digital music on tape right, before A-dat. there was digital music on yeah. CD. Yeah, dat dat tapes were digital. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But most people didn't play. Most people weren't using dat tapes. For most people, yeah, their very introduction. Very few. <laughs> for consumer introduction to digital music was the compact disc. And I swear that came yep. before Shazam. Uh, yeah, he said seven years before iPhone, which would be the year 2000. And CDs came out in, I believe, the year 1979. I right. could be wrong. It could yeah, be 89. Most people, wow. got, most people got a CD player in like the mid 80s. It started to become like a four. Okay, yeah. 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 yeah your phone in the air hear a song and in 15 seconds no matter where the song was playing be able to know what that song is access up that song and be able to make that happen and he did it he did it in spite of every obstacle you can possibly imagine and he ended up selling this business for 400 million dollars to apple is the fourth largest one a billion people have downloaded this app and today, if you have an iPhone, you can just say, Siri, what's this song? It's built into Siri as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please stand up, give a big hand to the co-founder of Shazam, Chris Martin. Is that a real so, audience? That's what I was wondering. Because <laughs> they haven't shown an audience here. It's Chris! Just they, a thing on... they showed an audience on like a Zoom call. Yeah. You know what? I, I'm more embarrassed for everyone involved than I am mad so far, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about this, but I, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, how people... do you do a motivational speech during like COVID era? So people on the people on the podcast, you're gonna have to watch the video on this one. I'm telling you. You're you're missing out a lot if you're not checking out the video on this. This is this is embarrassing. They're yes. basically in a studio, Chris, but with no studio audience. It's to be with you. You've got a product that most of us around the world all are delighted by. I can probably remember the first time we ever used it. I certainly remember the first time I did. Driving a car, hearing a song <laughs> while I'm driving, clicking on Shazam and going, oh my God, this song by Pink, Funhouse. This is really cool. And I use music in all my events. It's funny now the so the tags for the music are on all the... Um, even regular radio stations, so you don't even need it in your car anymore. <laughs> Which is probably a good thing, because you probably shouldn't be opening an app and trying to use it while driving. <laughs> I can think of an outcome why, that would have been like great. Like you said, you can just ask Siri to do it. I can think yeah. of an outcome that would have been great from his story that I can't say on Twitch. Okay. <laughs> what is that? We call this, you know, this, the radio stations and say, what was that song? And now to have this at our fingertips... I want to know, before we get into the journey of Shazam, I'd like to know a little bit about you. Tell us you know, what it was like growing up, and what do you think created this belief inside of you that says, mm-hmm. I can do things people say are impossible? <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I guess... I, it's I called narcissism. Up, similar to my son, I had... Well, and also, also, it's called, like, no one said that it was impossible. <laughs> there like, was, okay, so maybe, like, some people said it was impossible. But those people are people who do not understand how digital audio or computers work. Right. There was probably already like a computer system somewhere that could pattern match certain songs. Yeah. Yeah. So like essentially what they're doing is like fingerprinting the song, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then just matching like your little clip that you record with your phone 
with a bunch of song fingerprints to see what's the closest match. Undiagnosed dyslexia and ADHD, mm. and I had my own challenges of just kind of getting through basic academics. Um, and uh, so you'd have to kind of cope and come up with your own coping strategies and find your own define your second. own ways. Now you just blew my mind because didn't you go to Cambridge and didn't you get a degree? What was your degree in Cambridge? Uh, uh, that was a master's in finance. And finance. Yeah. And you have dyslexia. Yeah. That's wild. Tell us, That's tell us how you managed it, how you made it. You know, I remember when I was, I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, and I remember when I arrived. Yeah, from the, the chat, like, this guy just claimed that he had the, the ADHD and dyslexia. Didn't say he was diagnosed with it. And so, and so. Wait, did he say he was self-diagnosed? Yeah, undiagnosed, he said. He said undiagnosed, yeah. So, if he's claiming that, then I'd assume that he means that he was self-diagnosed he's not saying that he was later diagnosed by any mental professional and okay. and, and uh, focuses areas that had the least reading wow yeah because it's That's such a challenge wild. so you you had this dyslexia did it make you more creative then do you think yes i, I so i teach my this my son this and i i i've read about dyslexia and adhd and what's interesting about both of them is that while they make traditional academics a challenge and they make it hard to get good grades so people like charles schwab and richard branson are dyslexic right. or are dyslexic um it's uh it, i really believe it gives you superpowers That's um, awesome. in fact they call the thinking of of dyslexics they call it big picture thinking like an ability to kind of mm. see like orders of magnitude more variables at the same time and almost just have clarity about what's going to happen just think about that belief, everybody. I, I don't know. Like every that time is I not hear how I would describe having ADHD at all. <laughs> no, you was like literally dyslexia. the opposite of you guys how are talking I would over each other a lot. You guys are talking right. over each other a lot. Okay. All right. You gonna go? Uh, well, before we move on, I should. I do want to say, like, what he's describing uh, is not how. ADHD works with ADHD. It is very difficult for me to think about like a system broadly. I can think about like very specific parts of a system, but when I'm trying to think about a system broadly, like many different parts of the system working together, in other words, like when I'm writing code and I have to think about like, you know, how is all of this code working together? So how do I solve, how do I find a bug or solve this feature? That is monumentally more difficult when my ADHD is not, uh, has not been medicated than when I am on my medication. So maybe he's talking about like specifically when it's treated, but you know, then I would say like that's other people's normal. So I was... I was listening to what they were talking about. And I think they were talking about the dyslexia specifically, not the ADHD. Okay. Then I would say he probably doesn't have ADHD then. I, I, I'm as qualified to diagnose him as he is qualified <laughs> to diagnose himself. So I'm, I'm very hesitant. As to, am I. Yeah. I'm very hesitant to do any, any of that. Matt, do you have anything on this? Uh, just like he, he was saying about being a big picture guy. And I, I find like, Everybody who claims to be a big picture guy, like, is full of shit. I don't know how to explain it, but, you know, I've, I used to do a lot of stuff with uh, short filmmakers and um, particularly worked with a lot of writers. And it was everybody, all the writers who said they were, you know, big picture idea people 
always had like the worst ideas and the the people who were just like oh i'm a writer you know i like to write always had like the best concepts like you know they really did have a good big picture kind of thing so yeah and not for nothing like in business when you hear people saying they're a big picture person it's almost always somebody who's rich right (laughs) yeah it's never it's never like a junior level engineer being like actually i'm a big picture engineer they're like somebody's like get shut the fuck up we're having a meeting about something very specific right (laughs) (laughs) only your boss's boss's boss gets to be a big picture person (laughs) yeah and they always suck at it too and you find its benefit that's how your life changes it shifts your identity once your identity shifts your whole world shifts yeah so you go to school and what was your intention what did you think you were going to do were you entrepreneurial or so no initially I, i initially i did I started at Berkeley as an engineering major, switched out of that to economics and business. Um, And I I, kind of did a traditional route. I did management consulting in my first years out of college. Um, And it it wasn't really on my radar to start a company at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, It was only when I was doing my MBA, I went back to Berkeley to do my MBA, still not realizing that I wanted to start a company. And it was actually in the first week of my MBA program, I was in the computer lab, and next to me was a, a... a guy that was one year ahead of me in the second year of his MBA, of the MBA. And I said, oh, what, what did you do before the MBA program here at Berkeley? And he said, oh, I was an Air Force pilot. And I thought, Air Force pilot, wow. And then, and then he said, I said, well, what are you doing now? He said, well, I'm starting a company. It actually ended up going public, that company, a real estate company called Zip Realty. And was, it, was it on the web? Was uh, it, a- it was a web, an early web. Um, yeah, because this is in 2000, this is 1998. So oh, early wow, in the days, yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so if yeah. his company went public in 1998, you know what happened? Did line go up, line go down. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and I bet his ass fucking his ass left, it was left holding the bag. And by the bag, I mean the bag of money. Right. <laughs> oh man, this is going to be insufferable. I said, I'm starting a, a real estate internet company. And I thought, wow, an air force pilot is suddenly starting a company. And I thought, now I have no excuse because, I mean, I don't, you know. Because he's like, I know I'm smarter than an Air Force pilot. Like, what do you mean now I have no excuse? <laughs> if you get to be like a pilot in the Air Force, you are an exceptional person, actually. You are an, yes. You don't just show up there and be like, hi, I'd like to be a pilot. They're like, great, here's your plane. <laughs> you, you have to and like. he's up there like, if they're letting th- this fucking guy do it. <laughs> <laughs> you idiot you met like an exceptional person before they even started their company <laughs> they like they like were an air force pilot now they're at one of the best universities in the world in an mba program you the person sitting next to you was already exceptional <sighs> just you can get i'm, I'm you know, really starting to agree with matt here that's that the guy's just uh, a I mean, narcissist you know, great at flying planes <laughs> yes. you know? Um, and so uh, it was very inspiring for me. And, and I kind of thought, wow, you can really just define your own path, you know, and you can, if you just want to do it, you just do it. Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm going to start a company as well. Uh, and did you have any idea what kind of company you want to start or went, did you start something before Shazam? No, I did not. So, um, wow, it was your first enterprise. It was my first company ever. Yes. Wow. But I thought this was supposed to be about perseverance. It sounds like this guy never had to persevere. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> Where's the perseverance part? <laughs> 
He struggled so hard with the decision to start a company. He also struggled so hard academically that he ended up at UC Berkeley, like not even out of community (laughs) college, like straight out of high school. It's like, I struggled academically. Sometimes I got an A minus. I want to know, were his parents rich? Oh, the answer. Yes, probably. (laughs) He also struggled so hard to to get lucky with his first company. <laughs> yep. my consultant you know just d- traditional you know check in for a job and and work hard you got to just hours, you know keep trying put your nose stuff. to the grind and you know um, if you fail what was the aha moment where you got the idea? i don't know i can't help you i never so, failed <laughs> so, so I, I first chose co-founders before we actually knew what business we were gonna oh start. you knew before the company yeah so we thought okay well let's start a company together um, um, we don't know what it is, but I'm going to pick the other two most important people in the company without having any idea what we're going to do. How did this guy even succeed? Now I'm thinking he, he didn't think like <laughs> he didn't think, well, we're going to do something with audio. So I need somebody with experience with digital audio to, to work on. No, no, no. He's like, I got to pick two co-founders or some other rich kids <laughs> who else never failed. Maybe you should have picked the Air Force guy. Yeah. Air Force guy's like, I'm not working with this dipshit. <laughs> Oh, this is this is this is wonderful so far. Yours and or people you went out and got directly? No, they're actually friends. Two friends. Okay. The fourth one was not a friend. We had to yeah. hunt him down. Yeah, the engineer. Um, yeah, exactly. The inventor. Um, but these these two, one of them was the, the guy who did all the fucking school, work. One of them was just a friend from around the city. Both talented guys. Um, and, and you're living just to give everybody context in the UK at the time. And so we were living. Well, I was doing my MBA at Berkeley, oh, but yeah. then I was doing. A, 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 then I went out and did a semester at London Business School. And so, so I'm talentless. Correct. My two um, friends are talentless. So we, were, we had to find a guy with talent. In London, doing an internship and so on at Microsoft. To be fair, though, Matt, if you were going to invent something, wouldn't you first go find an inventor? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> somebody who like knows the technology or general area that I want to, you know, invent something in. You know, <laughs> like this guy wasn't that impressive. His mom was only a lawyer. <laughs> that I we were in this we, we were in this like mode of say we're going to start a company we have no idea what but something and we would literally meet at cafes in London and just brainstorm we would just throw out ideas write them down on paper what were some of the early companies you considered <sighs> you know there was the one that the one that I thought about doing that uh, quite seriously for a bit was contact lenses selling contact lenses and all eye related care. Uh, on the web. Yes. Uh, and again, this is 1998. Yeah. So actually, gosh, that, it could you imagine having that idea? Contacts Contact <laughs> lenses, um, so but like, on so, the internet. Uh, I just found that I selling, but on the internet. <laughs> yeah. All right. So get this <laughs> fucking crazy idea. We have a store, right? <laughs> but it's online. <laughs> And this was um, 1998. Stores you know, existed and, online. And, and, like he's and, talking about it. Like this was 1998. No one was doing this. So, no, that was really big at the time. Actually, I was selling tickets to raves on the internet at that point. For fuck's sake, <laughs> you were able to sell tickets for an illegal party on the internet. You definitely, you could definitely sell like legal products on the internet to people. Yeah, yeah. was not. Hey. Wouldn't it be great if you could identify a song with a mobile phone? Mm. That was not the breakthrough idea. Because actually, there were about six companies doing that 
But that no one's doing what? They were all embarked on trying to identify songs with a mobile phone. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, but one even though there were no real (laughs) smartphones at that point, right? Right. This is early days. So, so Tony Robbins, how come you're not talking to them? A little startup called eMarker. (laughs) It was actually a device. That was not a phone. It was a little device you clicked. And um, and then there was one called. uh, Gosh, I I can't remember the names of these kind of companies now. That's okay. Music, but anyway, so. Basically, what they were all doing is doing the traditional thing that one would do when you start a business, which is just, okay, here's a business I want to start. How do I go about it? And so the the logical thing, working with existing technologies and building something, was to monitor radio play. And so that's Mm. what they were all doing. They were monitoring the radio stations. And then with these services, you'd say, I'm listening to this radio station, you know, 105.3. And then you'd enter that on your phone. um, And then they would tell you, okay, here's a song that's playing at this moment on the radio. Because that was technically feasible. We know what songs are playing on the radio. It's not a hard problem to figure that out. So the breakthrough of Shazam was that I was thinking about that business because it was early days and no one had really taken off yet. And I thought, um, wouldn't it be great to come up with something like that? But w- I was taking a class at London Business School called Strategic Innovation, taught by Costas Marquitas. And it was really encouraging you to think outside the box about everything, question everything. Yes. And, I, and I was thinking about... First principles. Where I would question everything. going on in all these radio stations <laughs> and it would be similar to these other startups. What could someone do that would leapfrog me, that would just leave me behind in the dust? Yes. That's the strategic innovation. So you thought in terms of your competitor if you were in that business. Exactly. What would just invest all these years building this business? What would just leave me in the dust and just make me irrelevant? And then that was that was the breakthrough. So, I thought, so he just he thought about his product from the air more, not from the radio stations. Literally in the air, and then you wouldn't have to enter the radio station. And not only that, but it wouldn't just work for radio play. You'd use it in cafes, bars, clubs, movie theaters. Yeah. You know, everywhere you go, right? Shopping malls, Liquid. anywhere you hear a song, because it's not just radio out there. Yeah, that's wild. You know, one of the things I try to teach all entrepreneurs is there's always two businesses you're running: the business you're in and the business you're becoming. And in order to be the business you're becoming, you've got to think about what would knock you off. I mean, you actually use that principle on your own. That's pretty awesome. Tell me, so you come up with the idea. You've got some initial partners. You start, as I understand it, to try to ask people, and they all say, it's impossible, which lights your fire, which I love. So t- tell us more about But he was just asking stupid people, because if you would have asked me in 1998 if I thought there was going to be a computer program that would be able to identify a song using a waveform, I'd be like, that sounds like, wait, do, do we have that? That would be my, like, we probably, I'd assume we had that already. That, it, that I'd assume, I would assume that it wouldn't be great, right? But I would assume that yeah. we had, like, if you, I would assume that there was a website at that time where you could upload a snippet of a song or whatever and it would kick back out what that song was. The, the yeah. only, and I don't know if that's the case so, or not, but we were, audio, like, <clears throat> people don't understand that, like, Audio is actually not a lot of data. It, there's just not a lot there. It's just a waveform. Yep. Uh, I do think that there were algorithms at the time. Uh, and the reason I think that is I'm looking at a paper right now called A Review of Algorithms for Audio Fingerprinting. This one is from 2002, but it references a paper called Fast Sequence Matching in Time Series Databases from 1994. So I do believe that algorithms for this exact purpose existed 
at least since 1994. Right. And that paper that you're, that you see it referencing was probably building on some other work that was doing something similar as well. You know, it's, it's very, very rare that something Mm -hmm. isn't building on something before it productizing it and making it so it works on your phone actually is the interesting part because back then you didn't have an iPhone, right? So to make it work on a phone, you would have to have like one for a specific, you'd have to have an app for every specific phone. And so that was actually the difficult part, although it may have just leveraged the mobile web such as it was at the time i don't know (laughs) i'm not sure well i think the other issue is you have to deal with like noise and stuff and but because they figured out how to fingerprint through the through noise um it's just a matter of like you know the closest approximate match yeah and like removing some of the outliers that don't match you don't have to be right like a hundred percent of the time for this to be uh um an interesting thing that people are going to want, right? If yeah. if you if you get it at the beginning, if you get that seventy five or eighty percent of the time, people's going to people are going to think it's magic. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. and then tell us how you got to your fourth partner, your engineer. Is it even a- Avery. Avery? Avery. Yeah. Wait. The, so, yeah. So we, his here we fourth partner idea, was again, the engineer. Guys, <laughs> Actually, did the work. Uh, what? And so we're like, oh yeah, we'll just invent this technology. You know, you hold your phone up, and it's pattern recognition, and it will hear the sound over the phone. And these are ancient phones, right? This yeah. is in the year. This is in two thousand. Um, and it will will identify the song. Great. Okay. So now, how do we go about doing this? So go on to Google, type in a few things, a few queries, and then we start to realize, okay, the people that are really advanced in this audio area, rec- sort of pattern recognition, are basically they're, they're people who have focused on electrical engineering with a focus on digital signal processing with a focus on audio signal processing. Yes. And then it's among those people focused on audio signal processing, some people had a particular interest in music. Okay. And we find these people on the web, they've published papers, done various studies, and they typically had come out of places like MIT Media Lab or Stanford had a group right. called the Center for Computer Research and Music and Acoustics. And maybe in this program, two or three PhDs would graduate each year and, um, from, with a music PhD, music acoustics PhD. So we go out and we meet these guys, a few of them that we find, just reach out to them. And um, we're like, we have a top secret idea. You can't tell anyone but we need to invent this technology that can identify <laughs> songs on a mobile phone, okay? And um, they said, I'm sorry, this, this, that's just not possible. You know, I know every technology out there, um, I don't know of any way to do something like that. And the reason is because you're dealing with, in pattern recognition, when you combine two core challenges, and those, one is scale, a right. lot of music, and then the other one is noise. Yeah, because you're in a bar, you've got people talking and still being able, and recognize a song at any point in the song too, right? any point in the song, and there could be all kinds of audio challenges and so on. You have, the phones have uh, vocoders that emphasize the human voice and de-emphasize all other sounds, mm. noise cancellation, just all these technologies working against you. Um, and it was just incredibly, we would capture some So just sound run the music in your database through the same vocoder. So they just had no idea how to do it. Mm. Um, we, we finally found this professor who was kind of famous in this little circle of audio signal processing people, Professor Julius Smith at Stanford, he was famous because he had invented the algorithms behind the Yamaha, Yamaha synthesizers that are wow. out there today in all Yamaha or all electronic keyboards. Yeah. Um, and so we went to him and he said, I, I have no idea how to do this either. But he said, I think it's a great idea and, I, and I'd be happy to be your advisor and help out. Wow. Um, and so the, his first project as advisor was... I he says, you youngsters seem like you have a lot of money. 
<laughs> yeah. And I said, oh, I found all these names and they're pretty much, you know, they're all PhDs, mostly out of MIT and Stanford and Berkeley and so on. And I said, um, I need, we need a co-founder and we need him to be like a genius. Uh, and so he knew all the names because it's a small world. They go to yeah. the same conferences. Um, and I just said, can you just rank the five smartest guys on this list and just guys and gals yes. and, uh, and, and, and we're going to go after those people as our co-founder. And I want them to be people that, because clearly they're all very smart, right? They're all right. PhDs from MIT and so on. Um, but anyway, we said they need, we need them to be like an inventor, and mm. actually an abstract thinker. Yeah. Um, and uh, someone that was just going to go down to the core principles and really think about how can we invent this type of technology. And so on that list, we had a little list of the top five. And number one was this guy, Avery Wang, that had done his PhD under Julius. Um, he had... Uh, Four or five degrees from Stanford in mathematics and electrical engineering. <laughs> How old was he? Uh, well, yeah, I think he's probably still 15 years old now. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. He was—he's one of those math geniuses. I think that, you know now he—I don't know how old he is today, but he, he, was, he was a young guy. You're obviously not a math genius but, if you can't uh, figure yeah, out how old he is today. And, um, so <laughs> we went to meet him. We—we we, we, actually the only—he told us later the only reason he took the meeting with us is because we were referred by this professor. Right. right? But he, he went out and met us in a little cafe with over a burger in, in Silicon Valley. And we pitched our little deck to him and said, we need you to invent this technology. Uh, and he decided it was perfect timing because his own startup was failing. He needed something to do. And he said, why not? So he didn't think it was impossible. Um, well, that, no, that is a problem. Yeah, he, he actually did think it was impossible. He as still well. thought it was impossible, <laughs> but I'll give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he thought I'd give it a shot. And one problem I faced is that he was... I mean, he was... Did they think it was impossible or did they think it hadn't been invented yet? Because if you, if you ask me, is it possible to do X? I will tell you, yes, given a certain amount of resources and time, yes, it's possible, no matter what it is. You know, do you think it's possible to have a robot that can perfectly simulate uh, a human conversation with someone. Yes, that is, that is very much possible given enough resources and time. You know, so the idea that this guy, like all of these people were telling him, no, that's impossible, seems really unlikely to me. It seems like that's n n probably not what they were saying. They were probably just saying that is too difficult with current technology or they were saying uh, it's it's not possible right now or maybe they were saying like uh, you know I, I don't know but I, I highly doubt that any of them meant it's impossible right he was probably having conversations with people about things like uh, compute resources storage internet like internet connectivity phone hardware like the limiting factors in 1998 for this stuff yeah, yeah. i mean it may have been like uh, people saying something like instead of impossible it's like you know two seconds of thinking about this i do not know the solution to this problem <laughs> you know <laughs> Yeah. So I'm going to say, and I don't know how to do this or something. He might be just misremembering it, that those people were saying it's impossible when right. really they were saying, you know, I don't think that's possible with current technology or I don't know if that is possible. Yeah. 
or even this is a very yeah, but, hard problem. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, obviously but he, it was possible with the technology at the time because they pulled it off. Uh, but I highly doubt that any of them meant it is impossible. Yeah. Well, but it sounds better if everybody said it was impossible. <laughs> right. I mean, you can't go to Tony Robbins with people who are like, well, I'm not sure the phones are really capable of this right now. He's going to be like, well, that's not really a good story. Can you crank that up a little bit for us, please? I'm trying to, I'm trying to grift people out of thousands of dollars. Excuse me. Yeah, especially a podcast called Perseverance, right? <laughs> it would, it would sound really better for me if, if everyone were telling me it's impossible to solve the spam problem, but no one's ever actually said that. Whenever I tell people, you know, my service eliminate spam they're like oh is it ai yeah well <laughs> ai is that's just what a fancy new does. thing to solve all the problems feeling, like yeah. I, I don't think i can do it you know he did, he was just he he would he was uh unsure whether it would be possible basically and he yeah. and i think he just didn't have he just didn't know if he could keep going because he was trying for months working with julius to invent this um and actually, Julius was such a positive, you know, I can, we can do anything kind of guy. That's awesome. That I would, I would organize a barbecue. And then to keep my co-founder motivated, I would say, Julius, and I think this is the professor he did his PhD under. Come right. over here, Julius. Don't you think this should be possible? It's got to be possible, right? And Julius would be like, yes, it does. And I thought it had to be possible. And so Avery would just feel the pressure because he's like, okay, they all have these expectations. <laughs> I better invent something. Well, first of all, in order to do this at that time, there's no Spotify, there's no iTunes. So how did you build the database? Forget even the technology of the noise cancellation and all Napster. the problems you would have. Uh, wasn't there CDDB? A database that could be recognized. When did CDDB so. come yeah, out? Because so, um, this is early days, right? Yeah. 2001, yeah. okay. So this is uh, basically when we raised our angel round, that was the summer of 2000. Okay. Uh, and, um, and then our venture round a year later. Um, seven and a half. And iTunes dollars. came in in what, 2004? iTunes was about 2000, yeah, three or four around there. Yeah, and, and then I, the phone, iPhone's 2007. Seven and the App Store 2008. So you're like seven years before the phone, three or four years before iTunes. Yeah. And there's no database. In those days, you're buying stuff on CDs, on and, CDs. and ripping it? What, yeah. what did you do? Yeah. Like so, a song? If you He's not going to tell you that he just downloaded the entirety of Napster and fucking used that as his <laughs> data set. Because that's what, that's what, there was like, the, that was the biggest database of music in the world. Yep. True. <laughs> there would be no other way to do this, actually, other than Napster. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look at him smiling like, yes, what you said. I obtained all of that legally. Yes. Yes, very we got <laughs> We purchased compact discs and ripped them on our laptops. That is exactly what we did. They had about 200,000 songs in total. Yeah. A lot of songs. Yeah. So how did you get 200,000 songs into a database? So we were... Um, we we and we also had a limited amount of cap capital. So how much did you raise first of all? So we had seven and a half million dollars, which is quite a lot of money. That's a tough but, raise. But to do yeah, that's not that limited. We were trying to do. You needed a lot of money, um, especially when you're starting from scratch, because we had to build our own search engine as well from scratch. Did you go to VCs for that money? So we they had seven and a half million yeah. in two thousand. We said yes. Uh, it was about over a hundred VCs. Yeah. You went. Oh, you give me a. Fist what would that be right now? Ladies and gentlemen, over a hundred VCs tell him no. Fake that's, cheering again. That's a that's a track of the people cheering because you don't hear any yeah. crowd noise at all. Like during the rest of yeah. this, like people aren't laughing at their little uh, quips. 
or anything. He's like, it's like he has a seat. It's like, he, it's like my soundboard. It's like, uh, it's like when we want to, when we want a, a, a hit of people not laughing at all at Constantine's, uh, Constantine Kissin's, uh, stand up. We have this. <laughs> oh, I, I broke, I broke the thing by entering the year 200 instead of 2000. Oh my God. Every like, so they had the essentially fuck? 13 million in modern money. Yeah, that that really yeah, doesn't seem like right. that limited capital. A hundred, two hundred, five hundred, a thousand no's, yeah. literally to get to that point. That is the dividing line from reality of turn your dreams to reality or not. And I think I read somewhere one of the VCs said to you something about no one would ever want to use this or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what they say? One of my favorite highlights. It was a. I won't name the VC, but um, <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a big VC. Uh, but yeah, we showed him the demo, you know, and at that point we had an actual demo and uh, identified a song, and a text message came to the phone, and he said, "I don't see why anyone would ever use that." Uh, <laughs> and and I, I was like. That just motivated me so much. And I, I just thought, um, I, by the way, I like to say, um, have you ever heard the golden rule? The, r- the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the it's rules. The rules. Yes. So, <laughs> oh, that's a, the, make the how rules. witty. That's right. Uh, when you're an entrepreneur. That's so an old joke. 100 VCs. You got guys telling it's going to be worth it. They didn't even tell well. And you get seven and a half million bucks, which is not a lot of money for the level of tech you have to do at yeah. this stage. So tell us, how did you even build the database? Yeah. So basically what we ended up doing is we first built software from scratch that that would run on PCs and it would basically r- rip CDs, take the fingerprints. From scratch? We used fingerprints from music. So it's mathematical descriptions of the sound. Okay. Um, and yep. then we also, so we built, that, we built that software. Then we hired about 25, 30, 18 year olds to work three shifts, three eight hour shifts, 24 hours a day, putting CDs into these computers, running our custom software. So he did it the hard uh, way. Basically typing the name of every song and the album title and the artist because wow. that, that stuff is not All on by the, hand. All by hand. That stuff was on the CD at the time. Yeah. <laughs> those, are, those are ID3 tags. Yeah. So we could launch in less than nine months. Uh, so those early CDs, the early CD operating system didn't have uh, enough information, like enough space uh, to hold the full song name. So I do think he's right. It's just, they did it the hard way for sure. Seven million songs. So be bigger than any music store. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was probably, it was probably a good six or seven times that of, of the largest record stores at the time. Yeah, Cause even those days you went to Virgin or HMV or places like that in London here, licorice pizza, that kind of thing. Yeah. Power records. Yeah. So literally, this is all done by hand. So then tell us the first version. How long did it take to get that first version? And if I read right, I think you were on Nokia with those little gray screens, and yeah. you could barely even text back then, right? Yeah, yeah. You could, I mean, all, really all people did with phones was make phone calls and send text messages. The one innovative thing you could do on a mobile phone was download a ringtone. We all right, remember that. Right. And be like, oh, and it was a monophonic ringtone. Um, and so we were like one of the first services that you could be other than making phone calls or sending text messages. And did you think it was going to just explode? And what yeah. actually happened? Yeah, so I, I was convinced, because you'd show it to people, and they'd say, wow, I mean, it's like magic. They couldn't believe you'd hold this phone up in the air, this very rude, basic phone, and then for, after a few seconds, a text message would appear at this phone, and it would say the name of the song. You'd show this to people, and they'd be like, wow, that is incredible. And um, Except for that one VC, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, and so we thought, right, once we launch this thing, it's just going to take off like 
rock, you know, like a rocket or like wildfire. But the reality is that we had to have a like business a wild rocket, time, and there was no advertising. <laughs> No, there was yeah. no, that wasn't even a graphical user interface. So we, our model was much like calling 411, which was each time you used it, you paid a small fee, for okay. like 50 cents. I didn't actually realize that Shazam started yeah. off on so like, a, you know, a bit of as a like a problem, call a number and you get a text service. Just getting the word out. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Difficult thing. And it doesn't matter. That's like would be the only way to do it at the time though, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, there were PDAs that had like extremely rudimentary app support, but for most phones, yeah. Well, even I think the phones, some of the more advanced ones had some rudimentary, uh, uh, app support, but like you'd have to make it like an app specifically for a specific phone. You couldn't like, there wasn't I a lot of the handspring visor. Right, but what, what, first. What, 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 what Matt's saying is there weren't like just basically two platforms that you could target at. Right, yeah. So the only way to make this ubiquitous mm-hmm. was, would be to make it so that you could technically, even though you couldn't get the text back, you could even call the number from a landline. It was just the text coming back would fail. So you, you yeah. were working with, you know, what everyone had, which was a phone that could make a phone call and receive a SMS. And that's, that's it. Yeah how great of an idea or great of a product you have, yeah. sometimes just getting the word out is, is so much harder than you realize. I worked at Dropbox and it was the same kind of thing. It's yeah. an amazing product, but getting the word out was just so, so difficult. So, Plus, she was so far ahead of the time in terms of tech. Ray Kurzweil is a good friend of mine. He's one of the, I'm sure you know, one of the greatest inventors of our time. And his great skill is being able to tell you 10 years from now what can be done. He doesn't know which tech will do it, but he knows based on compounding where it's going to be. And you have this vision. How did you know that we were going to go to smartphones? How did you know this was going to occur? He didn't. Like, what gave you that insight <laughs> when people still just using the phone to make phone calls? I think it was just, I, I was, I had myself during business school had bought my first mobile phone, regular okay. mobile yep. phone. Um, oh, like a flip phone in those a, days? A flip phone, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I bought it on eBay. I forgot what kind of brand it was, but uh, I don't think it was even Nokia. But anyway, um, I bought that and I kind of thought, I could just feel how everyone was getting mobile phones. It was just happening. Do you, do you remember yeah. that day when suddenly it went from being, you know, a third of your friend's headphones to suddenly like everyone had phones all very rapidly in just a right. year or two. And I just thought all these people are going to be walking around with phones. They need something to yeah, everybody had phones because you know, phones. you're a rich guy yeah, and you only know rich people. Contributor towards the Shazam concept <laughs> was like, is, we're going to do something that everyone can do with a phone, not just your computer, but yeah. something that's going with you everywhere you go. So when you got a Nokia, you do this first exposure. It's hard to get the word out. Um, did, you thought it would take off. It obviously didn't at the level you'd hoped. Were you able to make money at that I mean, yet? We were, or were struggling. We, still in we, were, we were really struggling. We we had a marketing budget that was part of the seven and a half million dollars, and we had we made web banner ads, radio ads. We even hired people to walk into bars and just tell people about Shazam. Yeah. Um, so we were doing everything you can. Our first market was the UK. Um, and we, when, we were, when we launched, we were usable by anyone with a mobile phone. So, because it was just all you needed a phone that could make a, f- a phone call and get a text message, which was all phones. Right. So you didn't need some kind of advanced phone to, to use Shazam. But we, we learned that just the amount you spend on marketing to get, make, drive awareness to someone was just more than the little bit of money that we made every time someone Shazammed. And so we struggled. We barely survived. We, we actually had two rounds of layoffs. We probably were near bankruptcy for the entire six-year period between launching in 2002 and the App Store coming out in 2008. And I, I read somewhere, I think in 2003 or four, like two or three of your partners left the company. Yeah. 
And then I know you, did you simultaneously, I read that you went to work at Google, yeah. you were interested in innovation, and also you just mentioned, um, um, what do you call it, Box, um, Dropbox. Dropbox, yeah. Was that happening simultaneously? So you were trying to funk, yeah. manage both these well, things? So basically, uh, I, my full-time role, I moved over to Google, and, and that was 2004, when it was an interesting 2,000-person company. And it's right before it went public, right? Right a few months before it went public, yeah. yeah. Um, and then I, I just my main role on Shazam was a board member. I, I was the okay. hardest working board member, because uh, <laughs> I was working 20 hours a week on top of my Google job. Uh, oh gosh. To, and for many, many years, just doing everything I can to try to make this baby a success. And uh, then you went to Dropbox. Tell me, what are the lessons, if I may ask, yeah. what stood out to you from your experience at Google? Did any of that help you later as, a, as an entrepreneur in innovation? And then same thing with Dropbox. What did you learn there? Yeah, it was, I learned so much at both places. I mean, just the, uh, the way those two businesses went around about building, a, taking a, a core disruptive technology and then making it so addressable to such large numbers of users in a scalable way and really being at the forefront of technology adoption and technology development. Uh, it was just fascinating. I mean, I, I was... And then if you're Google, you shut it down. My job was, I was a business <laughs> development guy, a partnerships guy. I'm not... Uh, as far as I know, Google was, has innovated two things. Google search and Chrome. Uh, Gmail. Uh, Gmail was just email. No, I mean, well, the, the innovation was kind of the interface on the web. Okay, I'll I'll give you that Gmail. Yeah. Uh, what about what about Google Plus? No, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much everything else they bought. Like what what else yeah. have they and, developed? And half the stuff they bought, they shut down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they constantly buy things and then shut them down. Yeah. Mobile, mobile partnerships. I was actually oh, the first perfect. mobile partnerships guy at Google. And so I had to do the relationships with AT&T and Verizon, but also you know, European companies like Vodafone and, and, and Nokia and Finland and so on. Um, and, uh, but just being in that environment, it, I learned so much about think, how you think as a business long term. Yeah. Um, and uh, from the founders, the way that the founders at Google would approach everything like it was a clean slate. You know, they would they would say right down to you know how do we hire people? What do we say in the interviews? You know how do we motivate people? How do we choose who to promote? Everything they would just basically throw out all the the standard stuff and then start from scratch. And everything is innovation, even down to how to recruit people. Yeah, that's really amazing. And what about Dropbox? What did Dropbox is also amazing. I, I just think that company is just so amazing as an example of how Drew and Arash thought about the problem. Yes. Because if you think about it, basically, they were also like Shazam, was, there were many music recognition attempts before. There were multiple attempts at cloud-type services before Dropbox, and none of them took off because they were clunky experiences where you had to download a piece of software, and then every time you wanted to upload a file, you would click upload, and every time you wanted the file back, you would click download. Yeah. And so they, and, and, and they kind of said, okay, we're not going to even think about the cloud problem. We're going to give that to Amazon. Let Amazon do all the cloud stuff. We're going to focus on the front-end experience and just make it seamless. And so, and the, and the way they did that is basically by conquering synchronization. Mm. Um, and synchronization is one thing they conquered. So Dropbox released in 2008. Did it? Uh, at the time, WebDAV, which is essentially half of what Dropbox does, uh, had been around for 12 years. So that idea was old. Yeah, somebody in chat's like, look, they made a fancy R-Sync. 
<laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. And not for they nothing, took a problem that had been solved and they made it easier to use. And not for nothing, yeah. there's a there's a problem I have with the timeline. Then didn't didn't he say he they sold this to? Didn't they? Didn't he say they sold uh, Shazam to Apple like not long after the App Store came out in 2008? So how long was he actually? Because he said he how long was he actually at Dropbox? Like the timeline seems a little weird. I don't know. Anyway, fucking who cares? I'm not here. We're we're supposed to be talking about Tony Robbins. Maybe we'll take another stab at Tony Robbins in a month because all we're doing is all we're doing is like watching a fucking watching like a, probably somebody who would have otherwise been a serial killer if they didn't uh, start the the Shazam company. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Tony Robbins hasn't said anything of any importance. We'll have to watch one of his speeches at Dreamforce in a month or something. I suppose. Yeah system so that you can yes. really look like a your own folder and so and they, they also haven't well, talked like at all about your you know the title of the video how to turn your crazy idea into a business there's been zero business advice in this it was basically well, just you know have an idea and have money <laughs> and get lucky that it works right <laughs> step one idea and money step three profit oh wait a minute it probably never turned to profit he's step three sell to apple <laughs> and um i don't know this is this is also like I, they titled this perseverance but i just i mean failing to see where this guy had to persevere what did he have oh i had to go get a job at google for one hundred and five thousand dollars in 2004 oh the fucking <laughs> struggle was real like what does he mean where's the perseverance part the Air Force he guy did didn't take him. They, like the, did maybe the did, did he get negged by the uh, Air Force pilot and he felt sad about that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he did say they went through a few rounds of layoffs. So you know, perseverance in terms of I guess not shutting the company down. Right, but was he ever laid off? I don't know. No, they didn't lay him. <laughs> the other the other founders bounced. Peter, if it, if you put a file in there. It was in Dropbox. It was in the cloud. No upload or no download. Yeah, just arsing. One early Dropboxer once said to me, he said, Chris, we had zero steps and all our predecessors had one step, click upload or click download, right? And he said, and Chris, the difference between zero and one is infinite. Wow. Oh, that's fucking Wait, brilliant. I always talk about uh, to our team that complex. My mind is blown. You make it too complex. You've took something unbelievably complex and made it so simple for the user. I mean, that seems to be the secret of Dropbox, certainly for Google, certainly what you did as well. I'm curious, how did you keep the business funded when you're having to do layoffs and things and keep it going and there's no real distribution channel? How did you do it? Did you go to more money, more VCs? Did, no, you, you know, that would have been, that would have never worked, as you said. I was going to say, I don't imagine them giving you any money at that stage. Yeah, yeah, and you would dilute to the point of uh, non-existence. Um, He's like, well, I was at Google before they went public and I got some options, you see. And then I was so rich, I could just fund this by myself. This is called perseverance, everyone. This is something that I encourage so many entrepreneurs to think about is that we found an easier way. I always like to say revenue is like oxygen. You need oxygen to survive. You need to keep breathing. You need revenue to survive as a startup to, to, bring, to bring something in, to pay the bills. You can't just keep relying on funding. And sometimes 
the revenue can come, the easier way to get revenue is to go after something that might be a parallel to your core business. Right. Um, and so for, for Shazam, we built a service to just monitor radio stations because it turns out, oh. isn't that interesting? Because we yeah. found out that we had an amazing, highly efficient technology and there were companies that wanted to, monitor, wanted to know what was playing on the radio. In fact- Kind of monitor their competition? Is that Well, actually, no. So uh, Ratings, ratings, you, ratings, you idiot. Tony Robbins, ratings. <laughs> People who are like- how many times is your song, like the people who did the billboard, where they decide what the yeah. Hot 100 is, they probably, this, <laughs> the software like this, yes, that, she, you, that should have been your first customer, dude. It's called Perseverance. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not, that's not an unlikely story for something like this, right? You think it might be consumer-facing, but then it's like you're actually, it's a business-facing company, that's where your revenue comes from. Um, yeah. Like, <clears throat> Zoom figured that out real quick. <laughs> that, that businesses were yeah. their actual customers, not individuals. And yeah. in this case, yeah, I, I, I would be surprised if he, if his first big uh, contract wasn't with like somebody like billboard or whoever does the charts in uh, the UK or even like non English speaking countries. Cause who cares if you're just matching a, if you're matching a pattern of a song, it doesn't, you know, it could be any country, any kind of music. Yeah. Well, so. I'm guessing like the radio stations would track that stuff, but you know, billboard or whoever doesn't trust the data coming back directly from radio stations that want to verify by a third party or something. You can see how that could be useful. You don't have to not trust it to want to have a second like source for the information. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Sorry. I shouldn't have said not trust completely, but you know what I mean? You want somebody to, you want a third party to verify kind of thing. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Makes sense. I pay out oh, okay. a billion dollars. So they get paid. <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, even smarter. Wow. And they pay out a billion dollars a year to artists for all their royalties. Yep. And up until back then, they were estimating what's played on the radio. They had people just listening to radio stations, writing it down, and then listening to 1% of radio play and then projecting that up to 100%. It was very, very archaic. Wow. So they ended up licensing our technology, and that brought in millions of dollars in revenue. Did so it make you profitable at that stage or did you keep the doors open? It didn't make us profitable, but it brought money in. And then actually what we ended up doing is selling that business for a big chunk of money. Wow. And that money. You sell, you're, what a genius. You're like, hey, let's, okay, we have this thing generating most of our revenue. Uh, let's sell it off, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's called perseverance. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe the amount of money was so big that, you know, maybe he's not going to tell us how much money it was. Maybe, maybe the amount of money was so big that it was the right move. Yeah. Several years. Wow. Uh, the name Shazam, where does it come from? And I heard that a lot of people want to talk you out of it. <laughs> tell us about that. Yeah. So, uh, uh, it was so a genie movie with, uh, with Shaq or something. What's the one that everyone misremembers? It's Isn't Shazam, it? but it's like with... Um, I thought it was Kazam with Sinbad. Yeah, Kazam yeah, with Sinbad. Yeah. That's the version. But Shazam was like a superhero, <laughs> yeah. too. Yes. I forget yeah. if it was DC or Marvel or whatever. It was like, a, it was like you know, not Superman, because you, you can't get away with stealing the name Superman. But Shazam, let's see, he was, the, he was like the D-team of like the superheroes. You get away with stealing well, his name. It, it, gets, <laughs> it gets crazier than that, because Shazam is actually a rename from Captain Marvel, but Captain Marvel was like bought out by DC and they didn't want to use Marvel, which is a competing, you know, uh, comic book company. So they changed the name to Shazam. And they made a decent movie about it. Yeah. About him. 
but nobody was really going to come after. Well, I, or if he, maybe he just paid for the rights to use the name because it, well, you know, it's not like Superman or Mickey Mouse or whatever. They're like eighty bucks. Yeah. Uh, I don't even think you would have to because you're not even in the same business segment. No one's. No one is going to confuse you. Yeah. Fair enough. The song and that just felt like magic. It really felt like magic. Yeah, still, I think. Yeah, and and it's like it's like wow, how can that be? And so. Um, Shazam actually has been, it's a, it's a comic series, you know, it's, it's been used, it's actually originally, I think, Arabic folklore it comes from, and it actually means to conjure magic. Wow. Um, and so in the, in the old uh, Billy Batson comic series, this little boy would say, Shazam, and a lightning bolt would strike down from the sky and he would become a, a superhero. Yes. Um, and it's been used in other contexts similar. Oh, matched your whole identity as a superhero. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's exactly. awesome. But people try to talk you out of it, I heard. Well, so one of my co-founders, this is, the, this is one of the things you learn for everyone here who has co-founders. You're not always going to agree on everything in life uh, right. and everything in your business. And that's going to be one of the struggles. And uh, so one of my co-founders uh, is an amazing guy. I always like to say he has this, the productivity of 10 superhumans. Wow. Um, but he, he just said, oh, that name is terrible. He's like, that's a terrible name. We've got to get rid of that. You know? And it wasn't just him, by the way. I had VCs as well. We'd pitch to them, and they have the gold. And, uh, and, yeah. and they I'm going to guess oh, they, the, the guy who oh, didn't want to name it Shazam yeah, wanted to name it something like <laughs> Music Match with a Z. Yeah, something really emotional. Yeah. <laughs> something that moves you, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But how did you, you just persisted? And then- yeah, and I, and I was very nervous because at one point after raising the venture money, we hired this big marketing guy who had run all of marketing for Capital Radio Group, which is the largest radio group in the UK. And uh, he said, okay, now we're going to hire an agency and we're going to evaluate what name to use for launch. And I kind of thought, oh no, don't give up on Shazam. I just felt so just emotionally attached to it. And luckily he concluded, oh, you guys have made enough traction with this name so far, even before launching. Oh, okay, got it. partners, we're going to stick with it. And I I was like, oh, thank you. Continuity saved you. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me, when did you know it was going to work? When was the breakthrough? Was it iTunes? When did, when did the breakthrough happen for you? And then how did you get tied up with Apple? Yeah, so the day the App Store launched was definitely the day, and from that day forward. And you were on it from the very first day? Uh, yes, from day one, Shazam was an app. In fact, um, Apple wanted to showcase amazing things that would show off their new phone. Remember, right. the iPhone had been out a year. So right. during that year, they, they were reached out to various companies, a small set of companies, some of them gaming companies, for example. Um, and they kind of thought, okay, what are great showcase apps that we can co-develop, actually? Even give, they provided guidance on what it could look like and so on. Um, and, uh, and so Shazam was right out the gate at the op- opening of the app store. There was Shazam. And they Im- immediately had this concept of ranking apps based on popularity. Right. And Shazam, and then the app store just... <laughs> they had this concept. Apple invented ranking things by popularity, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing idea. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking visionary. Grew and grew with more and more apps and more and more people and more and more phones. And As opposed to competing app stores, which ranked things on file size. It vary by country and time. File size and Number vibe. one app, 15 apps. gigabytes. Uh, and, um, and so I remember uh, in those first few years, the App Store, uh, Apple would produce reports. And they'd, they'd publicly release and say, here are the top most downloaded apps. And you'd see like... Google Maps right. and, and you know uh, Skype and so on Facebook and, and Facebook and and then there was Shazam and uh, I have to I have to admit I did reach out to that venture capitalist by the way um, and when, and I said it turns out people will use this <laughs> <laughs> oh you sure showed him. That's awesome. uh-huh. <laughs> 
oh, only put this in the is fake sad. cheering, really? <laughs> oh my god, you have to watch the video of this just to see, like, what's this? Like, this guy's like on a stick, but he's it's like a regular, like, see the top, this, the just to the right of the center in the top. There's a guy there, like, he has one of those setups for his bike where the back wheel is on like a thing that spins. And so he's yeah. like, he's like riding his real bike as a stationary bike while they're watching yeah. this Tony Robbins thing. There's just a lot going on here. <laughs> There's a lot's happening here. <laughs> oh man. This reminds me of a David Fuller video we watched, but that's a different story. How, how did he respond to that? And of course, like at least five of those people were advertising their product. Yeah, of course. Yeah. One of them was an NFT, so one of them was like, here, I, I just got ripped off by Tony Robbins. Let me pay it forward and rip you off. At that time, I was working at Google, and he came out. He said, let's have lunch, and we had lunch, and we just laughed about how it's just you can't predict the future, right? Yeah. You can't predict the future, and uh, yeah, we, it was great. It was great. Now, was it a free app originally? It, it was a free app, but we had initially had a model where you could only use it five times a month. And if you wanted to use it more, then you had paid for a premium version of Shazam. Oh, I see. So that was a, one of our many iterations of business models. I mean, Shazam must have gone through, Shazam innovated more in business models than it did on technology almost. <laughs> you know? uh, and, and so did you, how soon? Premium isn't an innovation. App was taking off. How soon before that converted into monetization? Then? Remember when you were a kid and they'd send you the thing with all those CDs and you could get like 20 C, like all these CDs are free and then you got to start paying for a CD a month or whatever. That's what he, that's, that's the innovation he had. So I invented matching music. You know what I also invented? Samples. <laughs> Free sample, that was mine. Drug dealers were like, hey, kids, first one's free. Like, this is the fucking model. <laughs> Remember when uh, AOL would uh, send out the floppy disks and everybody yep. would just write, overwrite them and just use them as regular disks? Yeah, but they had 40 <laughs> yeah. hours of free AOL on them. What, what do you think? <laughs> it's, the, it's, the fucking, it's the fucking dope man from an after school special model. Yeah, I still have one of those AOL discs where I tore off the label and wrote something else <laughs> underneath it. We're doing it for free initially and so forth. Yeah, well, um, I mean, so... I found it recently. It had some video game on it. It's just that they, they would change over time. I mean, we initially it was pay-per-use on, on text. Okay. Um, then, then, uh, then there were licensing models, which I skipped over, by the way. Um, okay. During the survival years, the six survival years, where we had B2B businesses and licenses, we also licensed Shazam. So there were like versions of Shazam that we preloaded on Motorola phones and Samsung phones. Okay, and got so it. So that was a licensing model per pay-per-phone. Um, then the app launched in the app store, and then we had this sort of certain percentage of paid users that, that we have. And then actually, people were starting to download a lot of iTunes music. We actually became, I think, the number one affiliate of iTunes downloads, three hundred wow. million dollars a year of music downloaded on uh, Apple iTunes. That's good, man. For that, that's incredible. That's amazing. Well, bring up, bring up the fucking Zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> So this is a man with a powerful clap. What point did Apple approach you or did you approach Apple to say I don't get why they put in the the cheer track. Like that's his thing is he has to hear cheering. He would he would melt. <laughs> if they spoke for long enough and he didn't hear cheering, he would just he would <laughs> melt like the wicked witch of the west. Any sense that you're going to be able to sell it for 400 million dollars? 
So, you know, yes, I mean, I think that was our, I would say that was within our target based on the venture capital round. How much had you raised at that point I, to keep the gosh, company going? I, we had raised actually close to 140 million. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. so when you, you raise that much, you need, to, you need to make <laughs> yeah. sure you sell for a big price tag yeah. to get, keep everyone happy. Yeah. Um, and did Apple approach you? Did you approach them? How did it well, come Well, you know, the best, they say many of the best acquisitions are ac that come out of close relationships. That's right. right. And there's no doubt that Shazam Proximity. had a close relationship already. I mean, for years, when, and when, when Apple would release new versions of its OS for iPhone and so on, we, they would make sure that Shazam already was up to speed so right for the release of the new OS. That's just called being a developer. We very closely with them on optimizing the, the experience, the flow-through experience to the iTunes download because yeah. we were such a big affiliate driver yes. for them. So there were many things we were doing with Apple already, and we had a very close partner relationship. Oh, also, by the way, we powered Siri. So when you use Siri to identify a yes. song... That was Shazam, and that was a commercial relationship between Shazam and Apple. What year did that start happening? Because I, I only started using that like a year ago myself. Yeah, yeah. no, no, that was a few years ago. That was before it was Apple bought Shazam. So oh. Apple bought Shazam in 2018. Oh, okay, I had been mistaken about the year Apple bought Shazam. Another example of you know the technology's there, but people don't. A lot of people didn't know to use it. They use Shazam, but not to use Siri in that way. Yeah. So you're already integrated to a great extent. You're already there. How did the how did the price come about? So we, we worked with a top-tier uh, investment bank um, for the road show of the M&A process, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, who did an amazing job. Um, and, and, so, and they're just incredible. They, I mean, they just opened the door to all the big decision makers at all the big companies. So right. as you might imagine, we went through a process where we were having conversations, confidential conversations with a lot of the largest technology companies that would be good fits with Shazam. Right. Um, and I think you know, the Apple... Ultimately, the fit between Apple and Shazam was the strongest. I mean, Apple cares deeply about music. They've always yeah. been the it's part of their DNA. It's part of their DNA. And yeah. iTunes, I think at one point, iTunes represented 80 or 90% of all digital music in the world. Yeah. Um, and obviously, they had Spotify as a, a, a real competitor now in streaming music. Yes. Um, but Apple Music is definitely up there as, a, as, one, as the other leading service. Yes. Um, and so it was just a, it's an excellent fit um, between. And then the other aspect that was an excellent fit is that fortunately, Shazam had always been obsessed with simple, beautiful experiences that people loved. And we had very high ratings in the app store. People love Shazam. and they I love remember them. early Shazam. And that, that is not accurate. <laughs> A billion down. Simple, maybe, but not beautiful. That was announced years ago, so it would be it would be like north of that by wow. now. Yeah, it's exciting. What an exciting field! Tell me, what did you experience when you sold the company? Was there excitement? Obviously, <laughs> money. Was there any sense of loss? <laughs> was it a dream fulfilled? And did it change your life in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think um, first of all, it. It was such a, a wonderful outcome as an entrepreneur because it is your baby, and you, I was especially so when everybody told you it was impossible. <laughs> yes, yes, I know. So it was so satisfying to see everybody it. told him it was impossible. Use it and the awareness. <laughs> Everyone says and, um, it's impossible. Dan and Angie, I remember going into like a. Grocery Everyone store says it's impossible right to sell contacts the online. Like, and the person behind the counter is like, "Look it out, Shazam!" And this whole interaction is going on oh, right in front very of me. Cool. And I, I, those kind of moments are just so satisfying it's to so see that satisfying. in the wild. Um, all right, and, get this. Uh, My startup yeah, idea is a restaurant. When you, when you care so deeply about this That's baby that you're so obsessed with, and then it ends up where it ends up matters. And the fact that it ended up with Apple made yeah. me so happy. Yeah. Um, you know, Apple made, they actually made Shazam. The first thing they did is remove all the advertising. We needed advertising. Yes. Um, uh, that was the, the last of the re business models that we got to. The, and it be, ended up becoming our primary revenue stream because we had to survive. But Apple 
advertising was their last one. And then the app became even cleaner and faster. I would have thought that would have been their first. And, and, and it just fits yeah. so well with, with Apple, the company. So I was, I've always been, I was delighted from day one that that's where I ended up. Um, cool. And then finally I could stop obsessing with Shazam. <laughs> I don't call Apple and say, now you need to change this, you need to change that. <laughs> Yeah, you know, they keep continuously improving anything. This is the kind of guy who might have called Apple and told them that they were doing it wrong, actually. <laughs> radically, and what are you doing today? Like, what's your, what? Nothing. I, so many entrepreneurs. I was fortunate enough to sell a company. Buying an $800 sweater. Which is yours, but a VR company. Uh, and they're really doing some nice things to it. So I know that sense of satisfaction. But on the economic side, you know, some people's lives are really changed by it. Some people aren't much. Um, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, they got to start the next thing. I know some entrepreneurs is like, no, I'm just going to go enjoy my life for a while. Yeah. What, what's your life like right now? And what are, you, what are you doing with your life? What's fulfilling for you? Yeah. So I, I, have a, I would say I'm a little bit of a hybrid of, of those what two. Um, but yeah, definitely. Um, so it was nice to have a financial outcome and it was a good one. Um, not, a it was good not, one. It, it was not, uh, yeah, it was a good, a good outcome, definitely. A great one. Um, yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, so that gives you the financial freedom to choose what you want to do. Um, I spend. A, I love to be able to spend a lot of time with my son, who like He's here. I saw him. Yeah, thirteen. Thirteen, and like me, he is dyslexia. I get him. He got all my bad genes. Dyslexia, ADHD. Well, maybe they're your good genes. Maybe, your yeah. superhero genes. Right? <laughs> right exactly. <laughs> So, uh, I'm, I'm uh, see what he's as far as I know, <laughs> dyslexia and ADHD are not genetic. He calls it the butt chin. He's like, oh. Tell him that's a Superman chin. <laughs> At least so, we have not yeah, determined so that they are genetic. The learnings and it's really working, you know, like the, your, these are your superpowers. And you, know, you can get just like uh, Richard Branson and, and uh, Charles Schwab. You All right, kid, here's your superpower. Your dad's a millionaire. <laughs> Tens of millions. So um, I love putting a lot of time into that, uh, spending time with my son. Um, I do have, I am incubating a startup because I, I, I wanted to start a new company, but I, did, I wanted this one to not be nearly as high pressure, but still be meaningful impact. So this is impact driven startup. Um, it's in is, the, it, is it impossible? Uh, <laughs> well, it's going to be very challenging because I okay. definitely love the technically challenging. I aspect. figured that. So it is it's an impact-driven startup. Oh, yeah, okay. We make yep. and it's um, and basically impact drivers. I, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say <laughs> using cameras and computer vision. We make sledgehammers. So, yeah, so that's, that, that's the idea. So you, <laughs> connected to the internet. Like we sell them on the internet. Alarm, <laughs> except it sits in a swimming pool. And then the, and the way you compare it to a smoke alarm is that you don't ever think about your smoke alarm. You don't come home and turn it on. Yeah. Say, is the smoke alarm on? It's just always on, always there in case a fire starts. Um, and sadly, drownings are something that occur every year in yeah. swimming pools. This is actually a really good idea, what he's talking about right here. Uh, computer vision pool monitoring. Accidents, gunshots, poisonings. Wow. Uh, is that amazing? And um, Yeah, so... So basically, this startup is called Guard, um, and uh, the goal is to think in a similar kind of way of like, how can we think in a disruptive technology? I way, like the idea. A plus. Very simple experience. That's key. Very simple. Same thing again, yeah. Yeah, so that's easy for people. That you don't have complex to, in the background, but simple but, for the person. But simple for the user, and and just suddenly, if God forbid, some you know uh, someone starts drowning, and it could be adults as well. I mean, one yes. of you know, a famous adults, one of William Shatner's wives down, drowned, um, one of Michael... Oh, Jones, Shatner killed her. I think cousins drowned or something. Yeah. So, um, so uh, yeah, if, if that were to happen, this would recognize the event, 
by using computer vision, much like a self-driving car recognizes someone crossing the street. I mean, now, some do, very, very sometimes. sophisticated recognition of visual events. And it makes an alarm? Is that what occurs? And it, it set off alarms all over the, all over the house and yard. Um, and, um, and then because it turns out that in most drownings, there's actually someone home. It's just that it's silent. A drowning is a silent event. In the movies, people say, help, help. Yeah. But in reality, underwater. Be interesting if uh, this is my crazy thought. It's completely wrong, but it'd be interesting if there was something in case it was not there that that's released into the water that they could hold on to. That would be the next step. Yeah, that would be an interesting piece, so that they could save themselves in the moment. That yeah. Thing. No, because you don't fire. If somebody's drowning, don't fire a projectile at them from a computer. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> well, I mean, you could toss them a lifesaver. Really, right? But if you with like, a, a light. Lob, so <laughs> like not like a right. not like a disc gun that would just like. <laughs> no, hold on, like when adults when adults drown in a pool, it's almost like it's a lot of times it's because they like crack their head on the fucking bottom of the pool or some shit like yeah. that, right? It's not for lack of being like if they could reach the surface or whatever, they could just crawl to the shallow end of the pool. Like when you know what I'm saying? If there could yeah. definitely be something going on where a lifesaver could help them, though. I don't think that's a bad idea. It might not save them, but it probably won't hurt them. The people that I love, my family and friends, that it's, you just realize that the basics. In I'm just imagining the demo all like in the style of that Silicon Valley show where like there's a real person drowning in the pool and then this fucking like weird machine just drops a lifesaver onto the top of the deep end and it's just floating there. And this person in the pool is like, just, I don't know how to slowly. swim. And the lifesaver just slides off and lands in the pool. <laughs> so this guy's idea is great. The alarm is is what the alarm is the the the, the alarm is what's going to save people. Yeah, I have a better idea actually. Um, my idea will will fully solve the drowning problem. Um, when you're not using your pool, what my idea does is it's a very large freezer that just freezes your pool solid. And then when you want to use your pool, it's a very large electric stove that we put underground that will heat up and melt your pool back into liquid water. Oh, I thought you were going to say a, uh, a second fence in your backyard, which is what most people have. No, it's uh, I'm I'm in the planning phase. Uh, right now, the the biggest the biggest problem with it is that it is monumentally expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say like whenever this alarm goes off it just like rapid very rapidly drains the pool so people can't drown because there's no water in the pool anymore <laughs> that's actually not be that's a problem with that the water into the neighbor's yard <laughs> Matt, Matt you're being you're being too practical and you're not using enough electricity all right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> needs more freezers <laughs> Uh, flash freeze your pool. Yeah, I should do that. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm going for. Just a very large. I actually, innovation number two, use the same heat pump that pumps the the air out or the, the heat out into the atmosphere to freeze your pool. Use that same one in reverse to pump heat back in. There you go. Yeah. I just saved you like a couple dollars 
out of the multiple <laughs> thousands of dollars it uses just to do one cycle. That's beautiful. Well, we're going to go for three quick questions. Becky Blake, Team 7, give it up for her, ladies and gentlemen. Nope, we're not going to do the, oh, but the, the Zoom stuff, we got we to include this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, son, she's I would let you use the pool, but it costs it costs four thousand dollars to unfreeze it. Her innovation, <laughs> a homeowners association. Becky, where are you in the world? Where are you in the world? I'm in San Francisco. San Francisco, everybody, give it up for him. What's your question, Chris? No, we're not so, going to do the questions. This is as good a place as any to no. end the podcast. Um, <laughs> what did we? We didn't learn anything about Tony Robbins, so we're going to have to take another stab at Tony Robbins here. We're going to have to watch one of his like obnoxious fucking Dreamforce talks or whatever, I'm afraid. Can I make a suggestion? I don't know if we, we can do it, but uh, Tony Robbins did like a really bad TED talk. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> I, I think we can show TED talks. Uh, well, the problem for, for the main show, they're not long enough. Uh, um, yeah, I just don't true. generally use TED talks, but uh, I think like, I'm telling you, he, you know, how they have those like sales and marketing events where they like have all these people come in and like give you a talk yeah. about sales. We'll just find one of those. And I want to maybe, yeah. I bet, I bet it would be easy to find him at Dreamforce because that's like the big one. Probably. And, but yeah, we didn't learn anything about Tony Robbins. This was supposed to be about Tony Robbins, but we learned about the, um, we learned about the, the guy from, uh, Shazam. Shazam who I picture at a, at a dinner, like a dinner event with three of her four of his rich friends, all comparing business cards right now for some reason. <laughs> I mean, he's like, he's, he's not bad. Like a lot of the people we cover, but, uh, he's just another one of those like rich, successful white guys that won't admit that like their wealth came from mostly luck. Yeah. Like right place, right time kind of, and you had money to begin with. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. He, he didn't even bring up anything about his family or growing up or whatever. I wouldn't necessarily guess that his family was like fabulously wealthy, but the, the, the story he tells the track he was on was certainly of like middle class, upper middle class or higher, like the, tr the just his trajectory. Yeah. There are people who were yeah. on that trajectory who weren't, but those people were the exception, not the, not the most common ones. Um, and uh, yeah, we didn't, I'm just, I wish we would have learned more about Tony Robbins. What we did learn um, is that he will turn into a, he will melt if he doesn't hear um, applause. And so he has like <laughs> fake applause uh, during his podcast. And then like, I don't know. I, what do you think each of those people that was on that zoom call, like paid for either the zoom call itself or the program they were in over a thousand dollars. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, a lot of them were desperate to advertise, maybe make up some of that money. <laughs> <laughs> like if only I could sell this NFT, I could pay off this dumb course I took. <laughs> it really does make me wonder, though, like when you're watching a, a talk by, uh, by Tony Robbins and you hear all that applause, is that all just fake injected applause? No, he's like in all of it. No, has this he is ever not had fake injected applause? HK, when he when he talks at these Dreamforce events, there's like ten thousand people in an arena. Yeah, sure, but I imagine they clapping? he probably he probably uses it for any time his audience is less than that. Sure, sure. 
Yeah. yeah, I don't know. <clears throat> Listen, this guy's a big draw. I'm not going to like there. People will get excited to like hear him give a talk. He's just a grifter and possibly or likely like a sexual assaulter from what I understand. It's just that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not denying that people get excited to go to his events or whatever. And I'm I wish I would have picked something else. But I was like, well, I thought we were going to get more Tony. I thought we were going to get more Tony. But all we learned about was the the, the inventor of Shazam. And with that, I'm not going to put this kind of pressure on Matt. I'd be like, Matt, can you read this show out? He'd be like, no. HK, you want to read the show out? <laughs> yes. Uh, we do this show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Pacific. Uh, and if you're listening to the podcast, you can check us out live on twitch.tv slash Media. Right after the show, we play a song and then go into red light. So if you're only ever listening to us on the podcast, you're missing, you're missing a lot of that content. So... If you have the time, come by, check us out. Um, if not, keep enjoying the podcast. If you want to find our other shows, they're available on echoplexmedia.com. And if you want to help support us, you can uh, donate on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash echoplex. Or you can buy our merch in our merch store, eplex.store. This is Boomers by Periscope.
If you like what we're doing at Echoplex and aren't into Twitch, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash Echoplex. For $5, you can get every show from beginning to end sent to you as an MP3, even the stuff we bleep out because it's too spicy for Twitch. Echoplex would not be where we are today if it wasn't for the community support we receive. Find out all the ways you can support the show at echoplexmedia.com slash support.